Hello, and thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. What makes God laugh? Find out in this study of Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why do the nations rage, and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. After the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate, and even more so after announcing in a gospel sermon that it was the risen Christ who empowered the miracle, the apostles Peter and John were arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin on trial. The proclamation of the resurrection was the major grievance because the leading party of the temple complex, the Sadducees, denied the possibility of resurrection, and wherever belief in it spread, their influence would diminish. In a remarkable manifestation of authentic faith, the apostles withstood rigorous criticism and cross-examination, as well as threats of violence from those who had already demonstrated the wherewithal to carry them out by successfully killing Jesus himself but a few months earlier. Eventually, it became evident to the council that they could do nothing to the apostles beyond threats and intimidation, and they released them. However, it did not take much worldly wisdom to realize that this incident was like a black cloud signaling an approaching storm. Things were bound to intensify for the worse in the days ahead. So the Bible says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 23, And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. The phrase, their own companions, is literally their own, and some translations say their own people or their friends. We've estimated that there were nearly 10,000 Christians living in Jerusalem and its outlying districts by this time. But the description of the meeting that is recorded in this text doesn't seem to allow for the idea that they were all present on this occasion. They were assembled in some place for a very grave discussion, for prayer, and for encouragement. Perhaps they were even in the upper room in which they met to wait for the coming of the Spirit. 
Perhaps it was one of the meeting places where a congregation would gather on the Lord's Day. Certainly the other apostles would be there, and many of the most devout saints, but likely not many others. After all, the apostles had just been arrested, and that would have been unsettling to those who were brand new believers. In early meetings, they had heard the apostles' teaching, the reminiscences of the life and ministry of Jesus, the eyewitness testimony of his crucifixion and resurrection, the explanations of his instructions and commandments for how people should live during this new era of history, the illuminating exposition of the Old Testament scripture that had been and was being fulfilled in him, and the revelatory proclamations of what he was now doing in heaven for his people. But this time it was a different sort of message. The powers of the world which had killed Jesus have now taken notice of them and have made it clear that they were willing to do whatever is necessary when the time presents itself to stop any undertaking in Jesus' name. Now, considering the infancy of the movement and the instability of its membership, many of these people were probably visitors from out of town who had lingered in Jerusalem after the feast in order to learn more about the Messiah, so they wouldn't have had much money, and they were probably staying as guests in other people's homes, trying to figure out how to survive, we might reasonably suppose that threats like this would be the end. But quite the contrary, the reaction demonstrated that these people truly believed that Jesus was alive and reigning from heaven. Verse 24, So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Threats of violence and reports of opposition moved these people not to abandon their faith, but to worship and to pray. And we'll notice it was not a prayer for deliverance, but rather a prayer of praise and a request for boldness. Luke says, they raised their voice to God with one accord. But what follows is a single speech. So this has generated several opinions about what exactly was taking place here. Some suppose that the whole multitude was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pray or perhaps even to sing the same words at the same time. That could be because the Bible does describe the early Christians as singing or praying in the Spirit, which seems to mean that special prayers and songs were given by the revelation of the Spirit, just as many of the Psalms of David, according to 1 Corinthians 14, verses 15 through 16. Another possibility is that all of them were praying their own prayers, but Luke simply gives a summary or a synopsis of what they were saying, as with the conversation among the Sanhedrin members in chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. Another possibility is that what they said or sang was written down or memorized by them already as a standard part of the worship, like a hymnal or a prayer book. And still another possibility is that the language simply means, as Dr. Alexander says, they are all said to have lifted their voices with one accord because they all united in the prayer of one, just as we now speak of a whole congregation praying when only a single voice is audible. When we read Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians 14 about order and prayer and the gatherings of the church, the strongest of these suggestions becomes the last one. 
a single brother, led the prayer on behalf of the whole group, who in the ancient style of God's people in both the Old and New Testaments would unite themselves to the prayer by saying amen. You can see examples of this in Deuteronomy 27, verses 15 through 26, 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 36, Psalm 106, verse 48, and 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 16. This is one of the rare examples of the New Testament recording the actual words of a prayer offered in the assembly. In keeping with the teaching of Jesus regarding prayer, they did not pray to saints or to angels, but to God. From the first chapter of Genesis, it's always noteworthy what writers and speakers choose to call God in a given context. He can be called by many different names, highlighting and accentuating different aspects of his nature. And in this place, he is called Sovereign Lord. This is how the ESV renders the phrase, O Lord, you are God, and it better captures the meaning of the Greek word despotes, from which we get the word despot. It refers to a leader who is an absolute sovereign, a supreme potentate, having no superior and no equal. To validate this view of God, they quote a passage from the Old Testament, Psalm 146 and verse 6 in particular. Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. What better proof could be summoned for the omnipotence of God than he is the one who made everything that exists? Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 32 and verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. For Jeremiah, this confession prepared him to ask God for clarity in response to his confusion over God's command. But in this case, it prepares the followers of Jesus to acknowledge that no matter what earthly powers rise up against them, when they are with Jesus, they are unassailably secure because Jesus is God's anointed, God's holy servant. And to articulate this confession, they turn to another passage from the Old Testament, in fact, again, from the book of Psalms, verses 25 through 26, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the heathen rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. This is Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2. In the old scriptures, as we have them at least, it is anonymous, but the early believers inform us that it was written by David. And they affirm that the books of the Old Testament, including this very psalm, were inspired by the Holy Spirit. God said this by the mouth of his servant David. Now, the way the New Testament writers use Old Testament quotations is a difficult and a very controversial issue. And in the final analysis, it seems best to say there is no rote or standard system. Sometimes they quote passages and explain in a very compelling way that each of the elements in the passage had a one-for-one -one fulfillment in something that happened in the life of Jesus or in the experience of the early church. Sometimes they seem to appropriate the words of a passage 
to something that seems totally unrelated to the original context and could not possibly have been in the mind of the original writer or audience. Of course, if we believe that the apostles were inspired, we trust that they used the old scriptures the way God intended them to be used. And even if we could never have made the same connection ourselves, we will accept the interpretation as valid. Sometimes, after very careful consideration, we might realize that there was a faint connection all along. We just simply couldn't see it at first glance. But in this case, there is a compelling reason to take Psalm 2 the first way, as a purely personal predictive messianic prophecy. It is speaking directly of Jesus and his experience. First, it doesn't make sense to apply the psalm to David himself, because the history the psalm describes was never experienced by David. David was not anointed as king in Jerusalem, but rather in Bethlehem and in Hebron. And there's no record of David facing a rebellion of Gentile enemies that he had earlier conquered. Because of these things, the Jews, even those who rejected that Jesus was the Messiah, still understood that this psalm was a prophecy of the Christ and not a description of David himself. And many times when the Christians would begin to explain how Jesus fulfilled a certain Old Testament prophecy, the unbelieving rabbis would abandon that passage, even if they had preached from it before, and begin denying that it was really messianic at all. But not so with this psalm. It is simply too clear to take another way. Verse 27, For, they're about to explain the reason God spoke these things through David, that is to give the fulfillment God had in mind when first revealing them. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. The Lord's Christ is identified as your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Christ is from the Greek form of Messiah, which means anointed one, and referred in antiquity to prophets, priests, and kings, or in the case of Jesus, the perfect manifestation of all three combined into one. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, the Apostle Peter connects the anointing of Jesus with the power to work miracles, which began when the Holy Spirit descended on him at his baptism. Here in Acts chapter 4, it seems to extend to Jesus' coronation in heaven, as evident by the mention of this happening in Mount Zion in the psalm and in this city in the believer's interpretation. Just a side note there, the phrase, in this city, which is included in most modern translations, is not included in the New King James Version, but it should be, because it's justified by all the oldest manuscripts and witnesses. So the early believers saw Psalm 2 being fulfilled not only in the life of Christ, but in something that happened and was happening there in Jerusalem regarding him. Now, Jesus was not baptized in Jerusalem, but rather in the wilderness of the Jordan. However, it was in Jerusalem that the manifestation of Jesus being made Lord and Christ was witnessed through the miracle at Pentecost and those that followed. Thus, the Christians seem to have in mind both the miracles worked by Jesus during his earthly ministry and the miracles he continued to work through them during his heavenly reign 
as evidence of his being the Lord's anointed. In the psalm, David considers how the powerful forces of the earth gather together to try the impossible, to try to defeat God. Why do the nations rage or throng tumultuously, and the people plot a vain or a futile thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So these are the great men of the earth, and they've plotted a rebellion against God and against God's Messiah. They plan to live independently of his will and to overthrow whichever of his purposes they don't care for. But note God's response, beginning in verse 4 of the psalm, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. The psalmist sees God laughing hysterically at the absurdity of these little, weak, insignificant creatures thinking they will be able to accomplish anything against the creator of the universe. God is mocking them, making fun of their stupidity. But suddenly, he will laugh no more. His mood turns grim. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion." God purposed before the foundation of the world to bring his creation to its fullness through his holy servant, his anointed one, Jesus of Nazareth, his beloved son, in whom he is well pleased. And no one, no king, no emperor, no army, not even the devil himself and all the legions of hell would prevent God from setting up his king. Here came men with pretensions of power, Herod and Pontius Pilate, the armies of Rome, the plotting and conniving leaders of Israel who stirred up with the bloodlust of the crowd against Jesus. They took him in their hands. They beat him. They spat on him. They cursed and mocked him. They ripped out his beard and they battered a thorny crown onto his head. They scourged him. They nailed him naked to a cross and killed him. And God in heaven laughed at the futility of it all. The Christians summarized the whole brutal, sordid affair of Jesus' trial and crucifixion as whatever God's hand and God's purpose determined before to be done. These men thought it was their plan their plot, but it was simply what God had determined before to be done. Now, this is not a common way for us to think about heaven's reaction to the crucifixion. We generally talk about God turning his face away in grief and despair. That's the one thing you can't seem to read in the Bible. But the Bible does say that God looked on that violent mob who came against his son with their swords and spears and their clubs and whips and fists and cross, and he mocked the futility, the emptiness of it all. Don't mistake the point. It is not that God was sadistic, or that he had some sick delight in Jesus' ministry. But he knew how it would end. 
He allowed them their moment to pulverize the body of Jesus until it could endure no more, and life ended. Because it was the purpose of God that by Jesus' death, death would be defeated for all men. And then God stopped laughing, and the serious end came. They did not accomplish what they set out to do, but they did kill his son. And God says, that's enough. Evil's moment was over. The mangled form of Jesus was restored to health and life. In fact, he was glorified with immortality such as can never be crucified again. And God set his king on his holy hill. He brought Jesus up through the clouds away from this brutal world to glory and invested him with all authority and power in heaven and on earth and a name that is above every name. And these Christians who know that this is true, facing the same bloodthirsty mob and violent plots, pray to the same God of Psalm 2. And they said in Acts chapter 4 and verse 29, Now, Lord, look down on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. McGarvey gives a powerful and beautiful analysis of this conclusion. He says, In these days of passion and war, when it is common for prayers to be filled with entreaties for victory over our enemies, and sometimes with maledictions upon those who are waging war against our supposed rights, it is quite refreshing to observe the tone of this apostolic prayer. These men were not in danger of losing some merely political power or privilege, but the dearest and most indisputable right they had on earth was denied them, and they were threatened with death if they did not relinquish it. Yet in their prayer they manifest no vindictive or resentful spirit, but they pray in reference to their enemies only this, Lord, behold their threatenings. While they leave the Lord without suggestion or request to do as might appear good in his sight, by such prayers as are often uttered at the present time, men seek to make God a partisan in all their angry contentions as though he were nothing more than themselves. In a later edition of his commentary on Acts, McGarvey included this note explaining his comments. These thoughts were first written amid the din and confusion of our great civil war, when even devout men on both sides were beside themselves with the passions of the time. The composition of the first edition of this commentary was once interrupted by the booming of cannon in the siege of Lexington, Missouri, not many miles from the author's home in 1862, and once more by the march and countermarch of contending armies through Lexington, Kentucky, where he lived in 1863. In our own time, we seem to be living in a country that is as nearly as divided and filled with hate and anger as could be short of the wartime Brother McGarvey experienced. 
And in our experience, there are many Christians who look at certain of our neighbors as terrible threats to our peace. They see certain politicians in Washington who seem to have it out for Christianity and seem bent on depriving us of our rights. Today, it's lawsuits and fines against a company here and there because of their moral stands, but we think tomorrow it might be something worse. How do we react? Do we trust that our Lord is the one who they killed, but he rose back up and ascended to glory to claim his kingdom all the same? Do we trust that no matter who it is or what power he or she thinks they have, the one who sits in the heaven will laugh and enlightened by the loving purposes of God, whose ultimate plan in allowing his son to die was the salvation of the very ones who killed him, do we have the faith to simply trust God and say, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word? In verse 30, the prayer continues, and the New King James gives the impression that the apostles are specifying the way in which God would give them boldness by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is in keeping with the promise Jesus made to them in Mark sixteen seventeen. They would know the Lord was working with them by the miracles they performed as he enabled them for the confirmation of their message. But I think the New American Standard Version captures the meaning here better. When it says, Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. You see, they were asking inviting God in faith not to suspend his work for their sakes. The miracles were drawing the attention to them and getting them into trouble, but they said, God, give us boldness while you continue to do the work that exalts you and magnifies the name of your Son. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, that is, when the prayer was ended, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. This word describes something like an earthquake, which to the Jewish mind was recognizable as a manifestation of the presence of God, such as in Exodus 19, verse 18, when God descended on Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. God was signaling to them that he was still among them. In fact, Luke affirms it by saying, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of the Lord with boldness. The power of Jesus continued to work among them. The name of Jesus continued to be magnified among them. The good news of Jesus continued to convert sinners among them, and the world could do nothing about it because God was on their side.
Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the Scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is part of the Growing Biblical Studies program of Tulsa. To learn more, visit our website, bspoftulsa.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way, while we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and do trust and